Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Welcome. I have got Chris Wilkins here. Um, You may remember um, a few years ago, uh, I brought Chris along, our accountant, who has been our accountant now for 11 years, um, onto a a video. Uh, We're going to do a bit of an update. Um, Chris is going to talk about all sorts of property tax, HMRC inquiries, changes with Moy Ramsey and incorporation, uh, and lots of other stuff too. Chris and I talk a, a lot about um, how to structure companies and how to make things tax efficient and sort of schemes and scams and you know offshore stuff that almost always doesn't work, uh, stamp duty schemes that almost always don't work. Um, and um, yeah, he's just an all-round sort of uh, very, very clever guy um, who um, I've learned loads off over the years. So Chris, welcome. Good to have you back. Thanks. It's been four years since we last did this. Indeed. It goes four quickly. Years. Yeah, yeah. I think we did the last one in your office, didn't That's we? That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, I, I four years ago, I think the thing that was right at the front of, of most people's minds, or, or should I say most property investors' minds, was Section 24, um, the sort of George Osborne tax that stopped property investors offsetting all of the mortgage interest against the rent, which they receive every month if they own the, per- the properties personally or, excuse me, in an LLP or in a partnership. Um, lots has happened since. Uh, lots of people have incorporated. Um, let's have, you know, what, what's changed with that? What are you seeing? And um, sort of how, how are the, how's the sort of Moy Ramsey update um, from where you're sitting? So if you go back to 2013, that's when the case was heard. And Moyne Ramsey originally was um, uh, a lady in Belfast. She had 10 properties, um, 10 flats, of which five were let out. Mm-hmm. And um, you've, if you think sort of on a sliding scale, if I have one rental property, or on the other hand, I've got clients who have got 60, where along that scale does it become a business? A business isn't um, a regulated word, so it's not in the, um, any of the finance acts, but you've got to decide where it is a business. If it's a business, you can get incorporation relief. So the key to this was that whether we could justify, uh, the Ramses could justify that this became a business. If it could, then they could incorporate the properties, uh, have a limited company and receive shares for those properties. So generally speaking, if I sold or transferred my one rental property to a limited company, that would create a capital gain. That capital gain would be payable by me, even though I sold it to my limited company and I didn't receive any money. So I would crystallize a capital gains tax charge. What you then need to do is if you wanted to do that, you've got to justify you're a business. And where along that scale do you become a business? And the Moyne Ramsey case was originally went to the first tier tribunal and they lost. And the reason they lost is that in the first tier tribunal, they said, well, actually, if you died, you wouldn't be able to claim business property relief. And business property relief is an inheritance tax charge. So there's only really two main capital taxes. 
inheritance tax when you die, capital gains tax when you sell an asset when you're alive. So in that scenario, they said, well, you wouldn't be able to claim business property relief upon your death, so you don't pass that test. The son, uh, Mrs. Ramsey's son, then went to the upper tribunal and Judge Berner heard that case. And he said, okay, just tell me about what you actually do and, and how, how long do you spend in the business? And so um, what um, Mr. Ramsey said is, look, my mum was repairing fences. She checked the credentials when tenants moved in. We, we did all the cleaning. Um, and the judge said, well, how much time do you actually spend? He said, well, we probably spend at least 20 hours a week. So the judge says, well, if there's a, if there's a degree of activity that outweighs what normally would have been expected to carry out uh, a passive investor, then I think that you actually you have got a business. So you've got to do that much more to actually be involved. And the judge said, um, it's an earnest endeavor. So if you actually spend more time running the business, then I think you can get incorporation relief, in which case you can transfer her properties to a limited company, receive shares in the company, not crystallize a capital gain and not pay the tax. So effectively, lots of investors have been moving properties from or, or moving the whole portfolio from their own names or um, from, say, a partnership into a limited company using incorporation relief. Um, I presume since, what, 2016, was it? Um, you know, you've seen more of this, have you? And, and generally successful if there's enough properties and enough activity? Well, with Moyne Ramsey, it's two scenarios. In, in this scenario, the Judge Berner said five properties, 20 hours a week, that's a business. And then you have pluses and minuses. I've seen ones with less properties because you might find that people spend more time. It's a case of going back to what the judge said. Is it an earnest endeavour? Are you actually working hard? Have you, are you doing more than what a passive investor would do? But the ramifications of, of Moyne Ramsey are that if you don't pass that first hurdle, you can't get the incorporation relief. So you need to pass the first hurdle. The second thing it, it joined with this is what George Osborne announced in the 2015 budget was Section 24. Now, when we first had this conversation four years ago, that was coming in over a four-year period. And that has now had a, a full effect. So now mortgage interest for residential property is not deductible in your rent, rental accounts. It's a tax reducer. So the key to that is, let's just say um, a scenario of a chap earning £50,000 a year on PAYE. I say £50,000 a year because that's the cusp upon which you, you're a basic rate taxpayer. £12,500 of taxable income is tax-free. The next 37500 is taxed at 20%. Let's say then he buys a rental property and his rental income is £30,000 a year and he has £20,000 a year in um, repairs and renewals, agents' fees, and £10,000 in mortgage interest. So... At the moment, he has no taxable profit if we go back four years because he's got £30,000 rental income, £20,000 of expenses, £10,000 of mortgage interest, profit zero. The new rule is that he now has a £10,000 taxable profit and the tax reducer means we work out the tax and then he gets a reduction of 20% on £10,000 off his tax bill. The problem is that that guy, whereas before he'd be taxed on £50,000, which is PAY income, is now taxed on £60,000. 
So that so that means the extra ten thousand pounds is taxed at forty percent. He's got higher income child benefit that wasn't taxed because he earned fifty thousand pounds or less. Now he earns sixty thousand pounds. It's all taxable. So suddenly you find that he's now into severe additional tax that he'd never had before. Hmm. It's um, it, it's quite um, mind boggling the ramifications of this, especially if you have a larger portfolio. Um, you have more leverage, um, i.e. the loan to value of your mortgages are, you know, a higher, let's say more than sort of 50% loan to value. Um, and, you know, you can be quite quickly in a position where you're paying more in tax than you're making in profit because you can, in round terms, in, in very rough terms, you've obviously explained it there in detail, but just so our sort of viewers can some, sort of encapsulate this in a, in a simple way it can only really offset about half of the mortgage interest against the rent for tax purposes if they're a higher rate taxpayer so or, or about to be pushed into higher rate tax therefore they could be paying more in in income tax than they are uh, receiving in profit yeah um, so the worrying thing about that is the client comes to me and says this is a scenario but don't worry <laughs> I haven't got a tax bill. I'm a basic rate taxpayer because I don't make a profit on the rental accounts. I said, but unfortunately, not all the expenses you incur on the property are deductible at what would be a higher rate. And it's that inequity between the expenses incurred on the property and the tax deductibility of all the expenses that make, creates the problem. And then it kicks you into, in this case, 40% tax, plus you've got the added costs of um, the child benefit, higher, higher rate child benefit charge that you would never have considered before. So really, it's almost like a, a, a turnover tax, but more like a, another sort of VAT tax, isn't it? Or almost like a sales tax. It's quite pernicious when you get down to the detail. Yeah. So I know when um, Rob and I were looking at this uh, originally, when we had the issue, um, you know, clearance was available. You could apply to... HMRC for non-statutory clearance to incorporate once you sort of outlined the the background to your situation and the transaction. I don't think that's available now. Is that right? No, you're right. Um, you, you may recall that when we originally looked at that transaction, I think the barrister told us not to bother with that. And mm. um, we actually got advanced clearance. And I always work on the assumption that if it's there, why wouldn't you take advantage of it? You get advanced clearance. And as you may recall... Some six years later, that's worked to our advantage. It has. I mean, we we obviously, um, you know, as would, you know, be expected with this sort of transaction. We, uh, HMRC, asked some questions on it, and you were able to to, to give them, um, uh, a, you know, a copy of the clearance, and 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 therefore, you know, that that sort of ties it up and puts the matter to bed a lot lot quicker than it would or otherwise happen, um, or would otherwise be the case. I mean. I think non-statutory clearance is a very good idea on any sort of complicated transaction. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we we did um, a share buyback for a client, and um, this was where a client had cash in a limited company, and you can get advanced clearance on that as well. And the beauty about that is um, HMRC have to reply generally within 30 days, and then they come back to you. But if you've got the advanced clearance, then any later revenue inquiry you've already got that aspect dealt with. What happens when they reply to you after 32 days, Chris? I write to them after yeah. a reply. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happens when they don't reply to that? 
Um, I then you can report them to the officer in charge. Yeah. And then you can actually take them. You can actually ultimately do what's called a tier one or a tier two complaint. Yeah. And um, that's a separate department of HMRC, um, and they will actually then investigate it. Um, and you can just create um, a degree of urgency to your question. Mm. Quite important, that isn't it? Because I know when we've had aspect inquiries in the past, um, often their last questions or reply, you know, outside of the time period that they're supposed to, or basically do things outside of the rules. And and unless somebody challenges them because they know the rules and they feel confident in doing so, HMRC can can just sort of get away with it. Is is yeah. So um, what you've got to bear in mind is that. Often, um, and you may recall an inquiry we did where HMRC sent a list of about 10 questions on a property transaction. Yeah. And um, a client came back to me and said, this will cost a fortune to answer this lot. And I said, not really, no, because we're not going to answer six of them. Hmm. And he said, what do you mean? HMRC have asked, you've got to answer them. But HMRC take the view that if you don't ask, you don't get. Hmm. So a classic type of question they may ask in an inquiry is, uh, when did you first buy this property? Can you tell us how you funded the property? When was the property first rented? Mm. However, you've got to bear in mind that their questions can only pertain to the tax return they're referring to. Mm. If the questions are out of that period, they can ask the question, but you don't have to answer it. And the key to it is to knowing which questions to answer and which ones not. And a lot of accountants who are inexperienced in this type of thing, you can create more problems because if you keep on answering any question they ask, a, this will go on forever, and B, there can be all manner of things that you'll have to deal with that make the inquiry very expensive and slow to close. Really time-consuming. I mean, they go on years, these things. Um, yeah. I mean, if you remember one we did, um, there was five different inspectors dealing with it, mm. and that's only because of the current circumstances due to COVID they're removed. But prior to that, we've had circumstances where there's been three inspectors on inquiry, and each one wants to take a different angle and different tack. And... What you've also got to be aware of, I had one big property inquiry where um, the inspector came, wrote the letter, and I sat down with the client, and he said, oh, I'm really worried about this. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he's asked these questions, but I'm worried whether we should claim 60% on that, this expense. Perhaps it should have been 40%. Perhaps we tell him. And you've got to just sort of say, no, 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 just answer the questions, give them what they want, and then see what happens. And we'll come on to this later, but... With the HMRC's discovery powers, a lot of it is with property because they've got so much information in advance of the questions. Quite often, they are waiting for you just to give them reply that ticks their box because, for the sake of argument, they probably already know what your rental income is, and they're they're correlating that. And whereas my client was worried about things further down the profit and loss account, they didn't ever come up. Hmm. It was the inspector had. Um, an agenda. He wanted to check that the third-party information he got agreed with our client's profit and loss account. Once that had done, he wasn't really interested in the rest of the profit and loss because it ticked all the boxes for him. So you you can't sort of preempt their questions because otherwise, you if you sort of go up and say, "I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that," and I say, well, "What are you talking about? I didn't even know you'd done it." Mm. Oh, but whilst we're here, <laughs> that's interesting. Can we have that paperwork? Because that's what will happen, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And then it just becomes a fishing exercise into all manner of other areas, which will push the accountancy bill up higher and higher. Maybe good for you, but yeah. not so good for the client, but also the amount of time and, and sort of energy in dealing with it all. Well, the thing about us is we have fee protection insurance, so it, yeah. it sort of doesn't 
cost the client any more money, but that's not the point. What you need to do is you need to get it sorted out quick and get a, a closure notice. Hmm. What a lot of accountants do is they miss the closure notice, which means that in theory, the inquiry is still open. If they don't get a closure notice, then if something else comes on down the line, the inspector can raise it because he hasn't closed the inquiry. Hmm. So you need to ensure that the closure notice is actually issued and you're on top of that because otherwise there are a few items that could be unlimited in the number of questions they can ask. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, I'm I'm often buying property, whether it's commercial or residential, maybe I'm converting it, maybe I'm doing a development. And, um, I mean, one transaction in particular, which we're doing now, I'd probably preferred to have done this up front, but we're doing it a, a little bit further down the road. Structuring property transactions, how, you know, where do people start? How do they sort of work out whether they're buying in an LLP, in a limited company? You know, are they are they separating the freehold, the leasehold, whatever? Where do they start, Chris? Okay. So let's start at the very at the very bottom. If I give you an example that a lot of people may may be able to um, agree with. So we've got a client and he said to me, um, can you help me out with this in transaction? I said, sure. Tell me what's happened. He said, well, um, my dad lives in the council house, wanted to buy the council house, didn't have any money. So I gave him the money and he bought the council house. And the reason was, in if you buy the council house personally, the tenant has to own the property. So uh, we're going to sell the council house, and um, Dad's going to sell the house. So um, can you work out my capital gains tax at 20%? So I said, well, to start with, capital gains tax on residential property is 28%. But why would you pay capital gains tax? Well, because I bought the house. Well, no, you didn't. You lent the money to your dad who bought the house. You haven't got an interest in the property for capital gains tax. Well, what do you mean then? Well, your dad, it's his principal private residence. You lent him the money. So when your dad sells the property, it's a loan from you, like a mortgage. But then the question is, how do we get it to you? So you've got to sort of go back to the sort of the basics first. Who owns the property? Because you can only make a capital gain if you've got an interest in an asset. So the next question is, well, how do I structure the asset? What do I want to do with the asset? Will it? Do I want it in a predominantly? You've got. Um, do I own it in a limited entity, or do I own it in my own name? So let me give you an example of a client we had. Um, an outside drinks party, outside, COVID-friendly. Um, and a friend said, we've just, so let me go back a bit. Husband and wife, um, the wife has. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. 
contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. work for some time the husband um was on pay he's going to retire um in june this year they're going to sell their house and buy a guest house for let's say a million pounds so um that sort of sets the the scenario go to the account their accountant um and i said what what happened he said oh it's all sorted it's fantastic really quick i just set up a limited company i'm going to buy the guest house um and uh and then it'll be great so I put my drink down. I started thinking about it. I said, I just can't see how this would work. So if you think about it, the, the company has bought the guest house. So when the guest house is sold, say, in 10 years' time, we already know that in three years' time, corporation tax is going up from 19% to 25%. So, that, so if the property is bought for a million, sold for two million, that increase of a million will be subject to a chargeable gain in the company of 25%. They've then got to get the prop, the money out of the company. You could take it out by dividend or salary or possibly liquidate the company. But either way, you will then incur additional tax. So you're starting off with a base of 25%. You think, well, what else could go wrong? Well, if a limited company owns a property inside it, then you're going to be subject to ATED. ATED we'll explain later, but that's annual tax and envelope dwellings. So you've got an ATED problem. You could claim an exemption, um, but the problem is you are crystallizing another problem on ATED. So you think, well, what could be a better way? Well, a better way is why don't they buy it in their own name? If the limited company owns the property, I've already explained they've sold their house, so they haven't got a principal private residence. If the company owns the property, they can't claim principal private residence relief because the company owns it, not them. If they bought it in their own name, they're going to live in one of the bedrooms. So they'll now get that part of it exempt on the capital gain. Then you may remember that for lettings relief, when the rules were brought in, if I bought a rental property and I lived in it first and rented it out or vice versa, when I sold the property, the last 36 months were free from capital gains tax. It was then reduced to 18 months. It's now reduced to nine months. So they can still claim the last nine months exempt from capital gains tax. Then there was a lettings relief of up to £40,000 of the capital gain. Now, that lettings relief was available because it was my principal private residence. Then I rented the property out. The new rule is you actually, the landlord has to be in situ with the tenant in the property. Well, they are. So therefore, they can claim a lettings relief when they sell the property. They can principal private residence relief when they sell the property. If there's any bit they haven't got a gain on, they can probably claim bad R, business asset disposal relief, because it's a business. So everything's militating towards my way, not in the company. And then I thought, well, I'm still not happy with this. There must be something else. So, okay, what else can we do? Well, as you know before, if you buy a hotel or a guest house, you can claim capital allowances on integral features. So integral features are <coughs> the guest house has a lift, it has safety equipment, it has air conditioning, it has boilers and heaters. And that is really powerful because that means I can then create a loss in the accounts in the first year. 
Now, you may be aware that there's a sideways loss relief rule, and that's limited to a £50,000 loss or 25% of my income. So I can claim in the first year, because the business will start in June 2021, and the husband has PAY income from the 6th of April 2021 to June when he retires, so I can offset some of that loss against his PAY income, get him an income tax refund. But it's even more powerful because it's the first year of a new business, so I can carry that loss back three years, and I can get up to £50,000 a year. So I can get him a PAY refund, depending on the size of the loss, possibly back three years, which means also the cherry on the cake is HMRC will pay you interest because if you carry the loss back three years, they'll say you shouldn't have paid that much PAYE tax three years ago. So there's so many things militating my way. Which is to own it personally. To own it personally. So that's a sort of structuring issue. And what really worries me is a lot of accountants don't put their thinking cap on. Mm. So one of the first things I do is when a client comes, I take really detailed notes because you, you can't advise them if you don't understand the circumstances. Once you understand the circumstances, you think, well, a lazy way would be to put it in the company, but a more ingenious way, if you put your thinking cap on, would be to take advantage of all these other reliefs. But that's a one property that's going to be let. It's a guest house. Sorry, guest house. So yeah. then what happens, it's got 12 letting bedrooms and they're going to live in one of them. Hence, it's a trading business. It's a trade, yeah. But if it was uh, a property that was, say, a residential property that was going to be let, I don't know, well, let's say the intention was to go and get 15 properties, then probably a okay. company because of Section 24, if they were going to put applied debt to them. So then the question, exactly. The question is, will you incur debt? Yeah. Because if there's no interest incurred, then yeah. my Clause 24 question is out it's the gone. window. Yeah. And then you've got to say, well, what's the main driver of this? I know that with the guest house, the main driver is the capital gains. Yeah. So if I take you back to, say, Trust House 40 accounts, and I'm showing my age here, they used to make all their profits on selling hotels, not on trading hotels. Mm. So they, they wouldn't actually depreciate any hotel on the basis that they maintained it to a very good standard. But the hotels trade didn't make any money. The fact that they bought fantastic hotels and then sold them, it was the gain. So you've got to con then consider... What are we in for in the scenario? Is it an income tax driver? Is it a capital gains tax driver? And then address your advice on that. Yeah. Okay. So, for instance, one that we're doing at the moment, um, there are capital allowances in this building. Lots of there are lifts. There are lots and lots of M&E items, wiring, you know, doors, uh, ventilation systems, all that sort of stuff. But there's a residential element to the building as well. So we're splitting the the freehold of the building and a lot of the plant plant and machinery items that sit in the freehold from the residential part and the residential part is going into a limited company to avoid section 24 but the the um, the other parts are going into an llp and then we can offset the capital allowances at up to 45 percent yes um, so at the moment the the highest rate of corporation tax is 19 percent so the maximum relief you can get in a company is a 19%. The highest rate for income tax is 45%. So then you can think of what additional benefits you can get by a difference between 45% and 19%. With what the structure we did for you, we also have to consider the VAT implications. Is it a transfer of a going concern? The STLT implications, so some of the lower proportions in actually moving things around. 
um, as well as the income tax, the corporation tax, and the capital allowances benefit. So it's it's sort of a moving feast. You sort one thing out, and then it throws something else Always. out. <laughs> and what you've got to try and do is get it all in equilibrium, because if you don't consider the whole thing, then you're not going to get it right. Okay, so ATED, um, this has been um, something that's, you know, he's been here for a while, hasn't it? Um, and, you know, it's specifically around owning properties in limited companies um, and over £500,000. Um, sometimes you have to do a return, sometimes you don't. Um, I think it was developed originally to um, put off sort of foreign owners coming and buying properties in limited companies in central London. But as usual, there are all these other consequences that stem from it. So what what do we need to know and think about with ATED? Um, so I always, in, when I get onto this subject, I always like to tell you about um, my, my um, conversation with Mick Jagger, not a real conversation. I live near Richmond. Um, Mick Jagger had a house for sale in Richmond for 20 million pounds. And um, I explained to my friends how the conversation would go. So I'd go to Mick and I'd say, 20 million, fantastic price, great property. Um, Mick, I'll buy it. Now, we all know Mick Jagger's very financially astute. So he'd then come back to me in my theoretical conversation and say, Chris, um, to you, 22 million. And I said, Mick, what are you talking about? He said, well, simple, Chris. My BVI company, you may recall, his BVI company owned his property. No. So his BVI company owned the property. And I said, but Mick, why would I pay you £2 million more? He said, simple, Chris. You own an extra property. So I know that you're going to pay the extra 3% because you already own a property. So you would be paying 15% STLT on the purchase of this for £20 million. However, my limited company in the BVI owns my property. So you'll pay stamp duty at half a percent because you're buying the shares. So the HMRC said, look, this is getting a bit of a joke because everyone's setting up overseas companies and we're losing SDLT because they're buying the shares and paying half percent rather than that. So ATED was brought in on called annual tax and envelope dwelling. An envelope dwelling is something owned by a non-natural person, a company, a collective investment, even a partnership with a company as a partner. And it was brought in in uh, 1st of April 2012. So the story goes that HMRC said, I don't know how much this will make, but let's say any property of £2 million or more comes in ATED. And my understanding is they said, we reckon that in 12 months we'll make this much money in tax. Well, it came in and they made that much money in three months. So this is brilliant. Why don't we reduce the £2 million to £1 million? which they did. And now they said, well, actually, it's bringing so much money, let's reduce it to half a million. So the idea is, is let's just say your limited company owns a property for half a million pounds, then you're subject to ATED. So people say to me, well, okay, um, I'm going to, the property I own, I will rent it and I'll pay commercial rent. That gets me out of ATED. Well, it doesn't because I'm a connected party because it's my company and I live in the property. So even though I pay a market rent, that doesn't mean to say I avoid ATED. So ATED was based on the value of the property on the 1st of April 2012 or every five years thereafter. So at the moment, we're looking at the values at 1st of April 2017. Unless I bought a property after that date, then it's the, the value of the property then, or I sell part of the property after then. 
So then it's the value at that date. And then if it's more than £500,000, you have to do a dated declaration. But as with my client who's got the guest house, you would then claim an exemption. So if I have a limited company that owns, a, say, a rental property, I rent the property out to people who aren't connected to the company, then I would claim an ATED exemption. But you still have to register. And if you don't register, you're still going to be fined, if, even though... If it's over 500000 It's over 500000 You still have to register to say that you want to claim the exemption. And then the fines go up. So in some cases, they can be £1,300 because you haven't registered. And the current registration date was the 30th of April, just gone. So you would have had to fill out an ATED form, register, and, and let HMRC know. Can I just tell you one other thing? Yeah, of course. Classic thing is I, I get, I've seen quite a few accountants get this wrong where a guy buys a commercial property and he says, I'm, I'm just actually going to convert that property because you'll see a lot of properties in the high street, uh, commercial property, and they're now making them into residential. Uh, oh, damn, I forgot to um, register for ATED. But the point is that your registration for ATED is when it becomes a, a dwelling. Mm. And the question is, you could be converting this property, but you don't have to notify them under ATED till it's a dwelling. And the point dwelling normally is when there's a council tax listing for it. So therefore, it only becomes a dwelling once it's habitable and once it's on the council tax register. Or PC, yeah, practical completion. Right. So, um, so up till that stage, you can be converting a development, but not liable for ATED. Yeah, that did just go through my mind, actually, as you said that. But, I, you know, for me, would I have any flats that are worth more than half a million? No. But I may have sort of cluster flats and HMO flats, which, although they're not worth that much, they may at some point in the future get there. So you, you sort of want to consider that. I mean, big HMOs could start falling into that for, for some people. They, they haven't for us yet. Yeah, I think the problem with a lot of this stuff is like, I think it's Donald Rumsfeld said, there's the known knowns and the unknown knowns. Mm. And a lot of this things is that unless you're up to date with it, ATED will just sort of fly over your head and no one will be aware of it. Yeah. For most people, it's fine because their properties will be in a limited company, but they're renting them out, um, need to register, therefore exempt, but uh, or they can claim a relief. But... Um, you know, it's, this is really for people just putting properties in limited companies and them not letting them out if they're worth more than half a million pounds. That's the problem. Yes, yeah. and, and if a connected party uses the property, then they're liable for ATED yeah. if it's over half a million. But generally speaking, properties, you know, that they rent out be worth less than half a million, not an issue. Um, and properties that are worth half, residential properties that are worth more than half a million, maybe they live in them, which is not an issue. Uh, and commercial buildings are excluded. Yes, it's got to be a dwelling. Um, and I think a lot of it was brought in for overseas landlords um, who predominantly would own an entity in an overseas company and bring it in that way. Yeah. Okay, fine. So um, next thing which we've been talking about quite a bit over the last few weeks is how you record assets in financial statements. And I suppose how you... Uh, file accounts, FRS 105, et cetera. Um, do you want to just give us some um, some sort of steer on how they should be uh, recorded and the different ways in which you can file uh, accounts at Companies House? So um, the reason I'm sort of quite passionate about this is a bit like when we had the um, 
uh, the clearance from HMRC, non-statutory clearance, is that you could find that something you did six years ago has a habit of saving you in the future. And if you hadn't done it, it can come back and bite you on the bum. Well, this is what happened. I mean, we, we had this um, aspect inquiry recently um, and you'd got that clearance six years ago or however long it was ago. Um, and because of that, I suspect we saved two or three years worth of questions and digging and, and, and all the rest of it. So, sure. so yeah. by the same token, you may be aware of the new legislation coming in on IR35 or came in on the 1st of April. Now, the point is with, with that legislation is there are exemptions, and those exemptions are based on the way you file your accounts, whether you're a certain size of entity. And a lot of the things I see from accountants is just because they're lazy. So they churn in the computer and boom, you get a set of accounts under FRS 102, um, or they don't take advantage of some of the exemptions they could have claimed. If you file the accounts using the wrong size of entity, you may find that you actually fall foul of different legislation, i.e. you can't take advantage of some of the IR35 reliefs that you could have done. And that's only because they didn't do something right some time ago that trips them up. And, and a lot of it is that you find that either accountants farm it out to the juniors and they just churn out a set of accounts because it's easy and cheap that's and don't think about time, it. Most of the time that's what happens. That's and, my experience. And they don't actually put their thinking cap on. And the trouble is if you don't put your thinking cap on, you might say, well, that's fine. It saved me... 400 quid in accountancy fees, but you don't realise that that will come up back at a later stage and could create problems. So if I give you an example, say I'm an IT consultant and say I've got a turnover of £3 million. Say I'll rent my offices. I've got two members of staff. So from a balance sheet point of view, my fixed assets are probably some computers and chairs and my current assets are debtors and some cash at bank. So I've got a turnover of three million pounds. I've got two members of staff and say my balance sheet is half a million pounds. Believe it or not, that is a micro company. And a micro company, you can file the accounts under FRS 105. And the rule for a micro company is as long as you comply with two of the three rules. So turnover must be less than 632,000 pounds. Balance sheet, which is fixed asset plus current asset, must be less than 316,000 and 10 or less staff. So in that scenario, that person can file accounts under FRS 105 as a micro-entity. Now, a lot of firms, they'll just churn out FRS 102 accounts. FRS 102 is the next level up. So the next level up is that turnover is 10.2 million pounds or less, balance sheet assets, current assets plus fixed assets, 5.1 million, less than 50 staff. So. With FRS 102, you can then choose subsections of that. So we use FRS 102 1A subsection, which means that you can file less information. FRS 105, you don't have to file any, um, A, you don't file a profit loss account, you don't file notes to the accounts. FRS 102, you don't file a detailed profit loss account, um, but you do have to file notes to the accounts. In each of these, you're actually giving more information than you need do. So I've seen people file cash flow statements, detailed profit and loss accounts, when there's no requirement to do it. I've seen all that. I Once it think. goes at company's house, it's public information. Mm. So your biggest competitor can look at it. We had one, a client came to us. Um, he was in a legal action. So he said, well, the problem was my last accountant had 
filed incorrectly. He could have claimed loads of exemptions. Then in the legal action, his competitor got all this information for the legal action that didn't have to be disclosed. Mm. And you'll find that all manner of people can look at company's house. If you particularly want to release information to, for a, a trade reference or something like that, then that's just between you and one person, not to the world at large, which happens with public You can sell house. them your full send them a copy of your full accounts when they ask for it, can't oh, you? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had one um, client mm. we we're looking at. I could tell you the amount he paid the cleaner. I mean, that's because the, the accountants had done it wrong. But, that's bizarre. But they just don't mm. think about this. No. Um, something else I, I noticed when, you know, you've got, um, say, quite a lot of property assets or, or any property assets in a company, I can't remember under which rules, but some of them you have to state the current value of the property. And I don't know if that's FRS 102. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, but 105, you can just put the value when you bought it. And if that was something when you, you know, you bought it and then you later converted out a load of value, well, it just stays in the balance sheet. It's a small number. Correct. Yeah. So if it's FRS 102, the asset has to be a fair value asset. So to give you an idea, say this property, this is your head office. So this would go in the balance sheet of FRS 102, but fair value means that we then have to put that in at its fair value today. Current value. Current value. So then what that would mean is that the fixed assets would go up and you'd have a revaluation reserve on the balance sheet. Now, a revaluation reserve is not a distributory reserve, so you can't pay out dividends even yeah. though it's in the um, within your profit and loss Because it's account. not liquid. It's not a realised <laughs> reserve. And, but you do have to do a, a deferred tax for that because what you've done is increase the value and therefore you have to potentially accrue the tax that would be paid on that. If, however, say on your balance sheet you've got a property that you rent out, then that's also a fixed asset because it's not your head office. The fair value goes to the profit and loss account, but it's not a taxable item in the profit and loss account. So and we've just explained really three different ways of showing the same asset mm. because you could have it in your balance sheet with um, an FRS 102. You could have it in your balance sheet if it's the head office, the revaluation reserve stays in the balance sheet. If it's, say, an investment property, um, then that goes to the profit and loss account. If it's FRS 105, so, so just giving you an idea, with FRS 105, let's flip it on its head. Say I've got a rental property that's worth £5 million. And say the rent is £50,000 a month, so that's £600,000 a year, and I've got two staff. So £600,000 a year is less than £632,000, which is the limit for turnover in FRS 105. I've got two staff, which is less than 10. So I've got two out of three, so I can file micro-accounts. Uh, and micro-accounts is one down from 105, is it? Or Micro-accounts is FRS 105. Oh, it is 105. Yeah, so okay. the beauty about that is, yeah. believe it or not, that is still a micro-company. Yeah, and... With 105, you can put the value of the property in when you bought it or when at it cost. At cost. Yeah. Yeah. Which, so, which is, I know that's something which, um, you know, there's a big benefit there. You don't have to show any notes to the accounts. Yeah. You can leave it in there and, and people don't need to know. If you're, if you're not interested in, in actually having that larger figure, some clients want to do the opposite. But the point is, if you don't understand the accounts and the tax on it, i.e., the revaluation and FRS 102, it's not a taxable um, increase in the fair value. You add it back in the tax comp, but you've just got to understand how they all tie in. And a lot of people just sort of just do accounts or just do tax, and they don't understand the linkage. I think most people don't, Chris. I, 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 
in fact, I'm not sure I've met anyone like you that that really does understand all this, how all this stuff knits together. It's it's just so important. Um, okay, so recently um, on an aspect inquiry, um, the one we were just mentioning, um, HMRC um, wrote to you, uh, I think, using discovery powers um, and you know, obviously you, you sort of have to respond. They've got a, a quite a, a finite window in which to ask questions after you've submitted the return. Um, however, if they discover things which weren't on the return or which you haven't told them about, they have discovery powers, which allows them to go back further in time. Um, Tell us about those powers and sort of how how they're sort of relevant to, to, to what we do. Okay. So let's say we did your um, tax return for the year ended 5th of April 2020. That tax return, the last filing deadline is 31st of January 2021. And we and HMRC then have 12 months to either change that tax return or raise questions. So that means 31st of January 2021, HMRC have until... 31st of January 2022 to raise questions. And then they'll probably open something called a, a Section 9A inquiry, and then they can ask questions. Once that window is gone, it's very difficult for them to actually crowbar their way in to ask questions. One of the ways could be that, let's just say, they um, you sent the following year's tax return in, and on that tax return, you claimed um, £5,000 a year for motor expenses that you couldn't justify. Then HMRC would say, well, actually, I think that that could have happened in the previous year. I think I've discovered something in this inquiry that leads me to believe that prior years may also have that, in which case I can raise questions. However, with discovery, they actually have to have discovered something. They can't just say, um, actually, we think that it might be nice to ask some questions about that. Can you answer it? So you may recall our conversation where I said their letter won't work because they haven't actually discovered anything. That even though they claim to have discovered something that you told them about, that was essentially what... Yeah, so yeah. then I, so then I yeah. went back to them. I said, yeah. okay, tell me what you've discovered. What have you discovered that's relevant to that year inquiry that has now closed? Because if you haven't discovered anything, then you can't open that inquiry. And then you... You cite, they've got their own inspector's manual. So you actually say, well, under the manual, it says that if you raise an, um, an assessment, tell me how you made up that assessment, how you got to the figures and what you discovered. And then things go a bit quiet. So effectively, you, you need to hold them to the rules, just as we are being sort of held to the rules in reverse. Now, you know, I, I think it's important to mention at this point that we're not talking here about, um, you know, tax evasion or doing anything wrong or, or, or anything like that. We're talking about filing accounts and all your affairs and running everything properly and within the rules. But but we're trying to reduce. I know with Rob and myself, especially, you know, we, we will get, you know, inquiries, we'll get questions, we'll get all sorts of sort of interaction with HMRC every now and again, because there's a lot of activity going on. And they've got us in this, what is it, wealthy and mid-sized business department where they, you know, we, we do seem to be... Um, I don't know. They think there's lots of activity, so maybe there's there's, there's money to go after. Um, and what what we're trying to avoid here is elongated 
um, inquiries, which cost huge amounts of money. I mean, I, I remember one, I think it was sort of, I don't know, maybe it was six, seven years ago. Um, and that, that did go on for, I mean, thank God we had insurance, but it probably went on for three years. And I, th- I think the, 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 the costs were about 80,000 pounds. Uh, and in the end, they were, they were found that there was almost no tax owing. Uh, so so that, that's what we're trying to sort of avoid here. So to start with, what we do is they're covered by fee protection. So mm-hmm. the fee protection covers all the costs. But the way we culminated that one, as you may recall, we went for something called ADR, which mm-hmm. is Alternative Dispute Resolution. Yeah. Now, we've just done one with a client where um, the case had been going on for two years and the client wanted to go to first-tier tribunal. In the end, we thought it would be better to go for ADR. Reason is, first-tier tribunal, it is open to the public. Our client was a very high-profile person, and therefore, um, by doing this, it meant that um, it was just between us and HMRC. We had barristers, they had barristers, but the beauty about it is you actually sort of see the inspectors behind the correspondence. You can try and get straight to the nub of the problem. And then and, and deal with it and negotiate. Yeah, and deal with yeah. it then because you can sort of see the whites of their eyes across the table. You can get an idea of the quantum of their problems, what really irks them about the, the thing. And it may be as simple as something we discussed earlier about IR35. We gave an answer and it's a win-win situation because the, the client was happy and we were happy. We sold everyone's problems. And, and I've seen them before where we had a client and he was convinced that my client was money laundering and all that happened he was buying a french property he had to exchange his money into in those days french francs give you an idea how old it was um and he was just buying the property and once we told him where the property was and how much he bought it for the inspector was happy yeah a lot of it is that it's just a case of trying to deal with what what are you concerned about and then let's see if i can answer it for you well i remember the the and i think it was adr the case we had i don't know six seven years ago when it culminated in your office with uh, three HMRC inspectors, uh, sorry, t- two inspectors and, and a VOA. And a, yeah, the Valuation VOA, Office Agency. Valuation Office Agency uh, and a HMRC mediator yeah. and you, me, and a capital allowance specialist. And it was all over capital allowances um, on HMOs. Um, yeah. And <laughs> it came down to effectively, um, you know, HMR, well, our capital allowance specialist saying, well, you can claim them on these because I've got a case uh, in a uh, a higher court, which was, I think, the House of Lords that yeah, says yeah. you can. Yeah. And HMC was saying, well, we have this Gravesham Borough Council case, which says you can't. Um, and they were saying, well, this case is more valid. And our, our capital allowance specialist was saying, but as was decided in a higher court. And, and that was sort of the nub of the issue. And Thankfully, I mean, what had that been around? Four inspectors? Yeah, like so that? if you remember that the VOA guy came from Carlisle, the ADR distribute, um, ADR HMRC person who wasn't involved in anything came from Southampton, two of the inspector came from Leeds. Mm. You're not going to get all those people around the table unless you've got something like ADR, but then they probably never even met each other. They were just talking, having correspondence. You get them all around the table, then we have these breakout rooms, and then it's a case of, well, What's the main problem? I think the first thing they didn't like is the fact they tried to open up an inquiry for the earlier year and mm. they're out of time. Yeah. So they couldn't do that because of the inquiry window I just explained and they couldn't crowbar their way in, into that. Then the next thing is that... Because you stopped them. 
uh, you know, a, a lot of other accountants would have just gone, oh, yes, here's all the information. Yeah. Yeah. But then all happens, you just create more of your own problems. Yeah. And, and if, you, if they'd allow them to get into there, then um, you would have another year to deal with. And then the other thing is that you may recall that we took advice from a QC who said that that House of Lords decision trumped all the other points anyway. Yeah. So um, it's just a case of explaining that to them. And then, um, fortunately, we got a good result. Yeah. So, um, yes, uh, it, it, it obviously, but, you know, that was two or three years coming, wasn't it, until we, we got them into that position. So we, we really want to avoid all of this stuff and time and, 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 and just try and sort of head, head them off early uh, before, you know, it, it comes to all of that. Um, so I think we've sort of attacked a lot of these points, Chris. Is, is there anything else you want to say before we, we go on to a, a Q&A? With, yeah, I was just going to mention about what a lot of people don't realise is if I take you back to the revenue inquiry I had, HMRC pretty much knew with this client what their rental income was. And one of the things I was going to explain is that HMRC have quite extensive powers. So you may see that they're actually been writing to some tenants of properties the list of questions and letting agents at well letting agents they they have done for some time yeah but they're actually writing to the tenants now the tenants don't realize that they don't have to answer the letters but a lot of te some tenants do especially for overseas landlords which can create inquiries um they're letting agents they've written to for some time now airbnb after revenue inquiry have now agreed that they're going to disclose all their information hmrc have this great computer called connect uh, they reckon it's cost them about £100 million in investment. But the thing about Connect is that if I say I live at 7 Letsby Avenue, HMRC can find out who the phone bill is to at 7 Letsby Avenue, who pays the utility bills, who the Virgin mobile phone's with, who the Sky bill with is with, um, who, the, who the rates are rendered to. There's lots of information they can get from Connect to piece together uh, at the land registry, you now have to put your national insurance number down so they could tell who owns the properties. So in a lot of instances, they could probably tell you what your rental income is before your accounts go in. And therefore, don't, be, don't assume that they don't have that information because the power they've got to get this is very wide. And that could trigger an inquiry. And it's not wise. I would always encourage everyone to disclose all their income because you're not going to go on go on forever with like, like this. If you disclose it, then you can work out, get a proper accountant, work out your tax and, and mitigate it rather than trying to put your head under the covers and hide. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so ready for Q&A. Um, Harry, have we got our first question? I can't read <laughs> from here because they're no. too small. I've got one. We've got lots of uh, comments, but I've yeah. got one question so far. Do you want me to read this, or can you see this one from? Can't can't read it. Too I small. Have a question mark in a JD situation where there is a special purchase vehicle SPV uh, collecting rent. Do both partners have to take dividends and profits and directors and loans at the same time, or can one partner take the money out of the business and the other leave it in? Uh, any advice? No, I mean, you, you can take them out at different points and you can take them out in different proportions. And, and what, what typically would happen is you, you put the property properties into a limited company or an LLP, and then there might be a shareholders agreement or an LLP or a partnership agreement. And in there, it will explain, um, you know, at what points each 
director or partner or member can take profits out and according to what metrics. Um, generally, if you've got shares in a limited company, um, the shareholders will have to take the dividends out in the proportions of, of shares that they own. However, lots of people would set limited companies up with different classes of shares. Um, and that would let you, even if you owned the shares 50-50 with your partner, um, if you had a different class of shares, maybe A shares and, and B shares, then that would maybe let one partner take out 25% and the other 75% if you both agreed that year. Um, with an LLP, I think you can vary it every every year. The designated members can vary it according to what they want. So this is all very flexible. And really, it's just about what the shareholders agreement uh, or the partnership agreement, LLP agreement, um, you know, what, what that says, i.e. what you guys have agreed. Uh, and you can agree it up front, or if you want to change it, you could vary it later as well. Um, I don't think that's there's too much issue around Can I that. mention something? Yeah, of course. One of the things we're doing at the moment is things like family investment companies. So what could happen is, say, um, people want to pass money through the generations. So you could set up, say, um, a limited company, and in this scenario – Mum had one A share, dad had one B share, son A has 49 shares, son, um, the second son has 49 shares, and mum and dad lend the money to the company. So then what happens is the growth in the company is actually passed on by a generation, by the parents funding it. So by the different classes of shares, then you can find that the sons can take out different dividends to the parents. Parents don't need the cash. But what you're then doing is finding an equitable way in your own family investment company to pass on funds to the next generation. And you can make the funds work, albeit just being originally a loan from parents. So that benefits the different class of shares, different dividends, and then the growth in the company. So you can have growth shares, you can have freezer shares. There's different ways of doing that as well if you want to make it more complicated and then just change um, the shareholders' agreement. Okay. Well, it's been emotional. Thank you very much for coming along, Chris, and uh, and giving us our sort of second instalment. No doubt we will have plenty more uh, of these tax updates. I hope you've got a lot of value from this. I always do. I always learn plenty, especially the inheritance tax stuff, which I, I didn't know before today. Um, so, Chris, thank you very much. How, sorry, just before we go, where can people find more out about you and your company? So uh, Wilkins Southworth, we're based in Barnes, Southwest London. Um, we've been in the same building for 27 years. We do everything from we do a lot of property. We act for quite a lot of the large property companies as well as franchisees, property holders. We do overseas tax, residence, domicile, and a bit more of the complicated stuff where you need to sort of put your thinking cap on, really. Really?